Isaiah chapter 6, which you can find on the screen or in your leaflets. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his, his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Uh, well, thanks again for, uh, for having us up here. It is, um, it is a rare treat uh, to be able to visit other churches and uh, kind of a real privilege to be looking at a really special part of uh, God's Word with you today. Um, I preached on this passage a few months back at, at Colonel Art Gardens, and uh, we're doing it as part of a series in Isaiah. So I, of course, realise uh, you've come today uh, perhaps not having any idea what's going on in Isaiah, in Isaiah uh, perhaps coming a bit cold to this passage. So I'll do my best to kind of set the scene and uh, give us some context uh, as we go today. Um, to do that, I just, just for a moment, um, to kind of feel the big picture of what's going on in Isaiah... Um, consider this, uh, consider that for many of us, I think we struggle sometimes in moments uh, with what it's like being a Christian in Australia, uh, feeling like a minority, uh, feeling like uh, everyone around us thinks we're a bit weird, uh, a bit deluded, wrong, and sometimes worse. Um, and we kind of perhaps cringe as we think about the uh, census results that will be coming out later on, uh, just to confirm probably what we already know, uh, that Christian convictions and belief in Australia, um, even alignment to sort of Christian sentiments, uh, those things are in steady decline. Uh, we know that Adelaide, the city of churches, seems to have less uh, churches or fewer churches every year. 
And we wonder, well, what is the hope for the church in this country? Uh, do you have those moments? Uh, I, I know I do sometimes. If you do, spare a thought for the first people to read the book of Isaiah, uh, some 600 years before Jesus. They were the survivors of, I guess, the near annihilation uh, at the hands of Babylon of their country. Babylon, the superpower of the day, had basically wiped out uh, Israel and Judah. Uh, and I hate to kind of think of the, the trauma you witness as a survivor in that kind of ancient conquest. Uh, but as one of the survivors of your country, uh, you are then uh, added to that trauma by being taken into exile. You're taken into Babylon, far from home, basically into slavery at the hands of those who have wiped out uh, all your friends and relatives. It's pretty harrowing. On top of it all, though, is I think the spiritual trauma that goes with it all. Uh, your God didn't protect you from the enemy. That's the first time in your history as a nation that that hasn't happened. Why, why has God let you be defeated by the Babylonians? Were their gods more powerful? That's what the Babylonians are telling you, of course. They rub it in at every opportunity they have. They burned his temple to the ground and there wasn't even a whimper from heaven. You know, some kind of God you have. Well, thankfully for the exiles, the preaching of Isaiah the prophet, um, who was active some decades before that exile, um, his preaching was recorded. I imagine it was very popular reading uh, in Babylon for the exiles uh, because Isaiah takes them through what happens. Why do we end up here? And I think more importantly for them and for us, what now? What next? What can we expect? Now, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, I'll just give you two very uh, important points that have come through uh, to help us understand what's happening in chapter 6. The first thing that comes through in those first five chapters is this. Uh, God still intends to make this tiny, broken group of exiles, he intends to make them a blessing to the nations. That's somehow going to happen. Uh, it's an astounding uh, future God paints in those first five chapters of somehow the nations pouring into Jerusalem to meet the God of Israel and to be blessed by him. Imagine that in, in Babylon, trying to imagine or believe that promise. That'd be very tough, I think. Uh, their census, track, the census data wasn't tracking that way. Um, the other thing that comes through very clearly in those first five chapters of Isaiah is what went wrong. Uh, the root cause in their defeat to Babylon. Uh, God had warned them time and time again, and they didn't listen. Uh, the problem was that they had enjoyed the blessings of being God's people so much, uh, they actually started to ignore the God who blessed them. The blessings were so good, they were ignoring the one who blessed them, taking all his uh, things for granted and keeping him at arm's distance. So Isaiah sort of condemns them uh, for their, uh, the way they kept the formal requirements of religion. Uh, they kind of went about the business still in the temple and uh, doing the right things religiously, but they had hearts of stone. Hearts of stone, even though they looked like they were doing the right things uh, at the very surface level. Uh, at the end of the day, they were taking advantage of the poor. Uh, there was a complete lack of regard for justice and so on. Uh, their religious practice just became an excuse to live however they wanted to uh, without honouring or loving God. And God hated it. He hated it. So chapter 6 here takes us right uh, into the heart, even deeper into this problem. What went wrong? And I think it also gives us a glimpse of the solution. What now? And uh, what hope did Israel have uh, to be a blessing uh, to the nations? to be anything more than an afterthought in history. Of course, this passage is not just the exiles in Babylon, it's for us today. And as we encounter the holy God we've just read about, I think we too are urged to shake off any sort of mere pretense of religion, the going through of emotions, and allow God to do a great work in our hearts and in our lives. And so this passage will thoroughly equip us as God's people to be a blessing to our nation and beyond. 
Uh, so you have Isaiah 6 open in front of you. It'll hopefully be helpful uh, to, to go as we go. I think there's a little, I think there's an outline. Uh, yep, outline to keep you uh, going in the leaflet as well uh, to give you some idea of what I'm covering today. Well, chapter 1 starts uh, with verse 5 describing this is all happening in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, uh, who's he? Why does that matter? Who's King Uzziah? Um, especially if you're taking notes, you might like to read about him later. You can write down 2 Chronicles 26. You can read all about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. A uh, very brief summary is that he was a very impressive king, a very impressive guy. He, he ruled over Judah for a very long time. Uh, he built the economy. He uh, had great infrastructure projects. He was a brilliant military leader. Um, he had a long, stable rule, and under him, Israel prospered. A good king. There was wealth, there was security, all the things you want with a king. Um, not all of them, actually. Like, he did love God for a while. He was a good God-honoring king. But uh, perhaps not surprisingly, as is often the case in this position, pride. Pride got in the way and ruined everything for him. And as went the king, so went the country. And in their prosperity, as I said before, God was increasingly overlooked and taken for granted. Now, Uzziah's death, here in, uh, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, Uzziah's death, think about living in his kingdom at that time. Uh, what would that feel like, this wonderful king who's just given you prosperity and security, him dying, that, that's a problem, isn't it? Uh, the problem with losing a great leader is, well, who's going to replace them? Uh, what if the next guy is rubbish? Uh, even more so because um, just as Uzziah died, the, the rumours, actually the news was coming out of the east, that the superpower of the day, Assyria, uh, they're on the march. Uh, they're coming to come and claim uh, as much territory as they can, and they're, they're ruthless. Are going to destroy all in their path. It's not a great time to lose, to lose your legendary warrior king. You can imagine Isaiah and all his contemporaries feeling a bit nervous at this point in history. So what does God show Isaiah? God shows Isaiah the, who the true king of Israel is, the one who's immortal and powerful, gigantic. Uh, so did you notice here in this chapter how the Lord is described? He's described as a king. So verse 2, he's high and exalted and he's sitting on a throne, uh, and he's placed in his temple, that is, God's palace. In verse 5, Isaiah just says it explicitly, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. You can't miss the point here. Don't worry about Uzziah, he was never really in charge at all. If you want help against the Assyrians or against anyone, look no further than the Almighty, King of Kings. And so, of course, we can't miss that same point. Uh, the pointed question asked of us what or who is our confidence really in? Uh, how would we react if, you know, like Uzziah dying, our confidence might get shattered? How would we react if, uh, you know, the things we put our confidence in evaporated overnight? A stable job, a good economy, a house that's picking up value every giving day? Of course, it would be very sad to lose those good things. Losing King Uzziah had some real-world implications, but look how big this God is. We get to turn to him as our Heavenly Father. We have nothing to fear, nothing at all. Notice how big he is in this passage? Just absolutely gigantic. Uh, verse 2, it says, The train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, now, the word train here is probably more literally something like the hem, or you know, the, uh, the bottom seam of his robe, just the tiniest bit at the bottom. The tiny bit fills the biggest building Uzziah has ever seen in his life. The temple is massive, and it, it fills up the whole thing. Now, of course, we know that God's big, don't we? Um, that's not a surprise to anyone. Even if you don't believe in God, you know he's supposed to be big. But imagine seeing his hem for some sort of sense of perspective in reality. 
I think that would completely change how we see everything else in our, in our life. Uh, I think the dominant set of beliefs uh, in the Western world outside the church, it, I think it kind of assumes that there is really no meaning or purpose to life. You kind of just have to make it up as you go along or uh, find the purpose that you can. I think if, you, if you're caught up in that sort of the predominant world view, it must be very hard, I think, to run into despair eventually. Uh, about the sort of the vagueness and the emptiness of that, especially if life starts going badly. What purpose is there? Well, encountering this gigantic, uh, all-powerful God, I think that solves the problem uh, forever. There is nothing more important or significant than this gigantic being seated on his throne. It's humbling, isn't it, just for a moment to put ourselves in Isaiah's shoes before this gigantic God. Uh, What a jarring and memorable encounter with reality, having uh, perhaps existential vertigo. The thing with this passage, though, that strikes me is, as much as it's clear that God is a big and powerful king, that's not the main point. It's not the main thing that burned into Isaiah's minds. The main point of these verses is that God is holy. God is holy. Now, there's a word, uh, holy, uh, you've heard a lot if you come to this church a bit. Um, what does the word holy mean? Um, as I thought more and more about it, I realise the more I think about it, the less I'm kind of sure I know what that word means. It's one of those tricky words, I think. We use it in different ways. Um, I'll come to that in a moment. I think a far easier one is the word seraphim. Easier because I have no idea what it is, so I can just look that up and it's actually quite a clear explanation. Uh, the word seraphim, so we see them in verse 2. They have, you know, we know they have six wings and they're praising God. Um, the word seraphim just means burning one, burning one. So there's some kind of flaming angel. And we're not told how many Isaiah sees. And we're not really, they're not described how big they are. But listen to what happens when they speak. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds of the temple shook. It's loud, isn't it? Um, a few years ago, I was kind of just minding my own business, business getting on with my day, and um, I didn't realise this what it was at the time. Um, but what happened was um, some FA-18 Hornets flew right over my head. Uh, I think the Clipsal 500 was on, and they're doing this sort of the flyover. If you don't know what's coming, uh, the sound and the sort of vibration of the house, it's, it's a terrifying moment of, like, you think you're about to die. Uh, that kind of, just that experience, being caught up in large sounds. I think what's going on here, like the seraphim, however many they are or how big they are, uh, perhaps there's a whole army, I don't know. I think these seraphim by themselves, if that's all he saw, that'd be a terrifying, uh, all-encompassing sight. But they're not the feature. Do you notice um, Isaiah doesn't really tell us what God looks like? doesn't see past his hem really so perhaps he just can't see it that high like he's at the bottom of a tall skyscraper and we're told there's smoke everywhere but he sees the effect the presence of God has on these terrifying fire creatures they cover themselves they're unworthy and they praise him the seraphim are calling out holy holy is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory The seraphim are praising God, not because he's big, but because he's holy. And there's that word again. Now, I learned this week, or I learned uh, recently that one of the quirks of the Hebrew language is that you can repeat a word to amplify it. Okay, I'll give an example. Uh, If I want to say that um, gold is pure gold, I would say in Hebrew, gold, gold. Okay, you say gold, gold, it sort of amplifies the purity of that thing. So if I I guess I wanted to say um, the most pure of all gold, I would say something like gold, gold, gold. Um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and that's the best I can kind of do. Um, so as you come here, you see 
holy, holy, holy. It's not just some kind of repetition. It's the, the chorus that keeps going around and around. They're, they're emphasizing, they're, they're building on how holy God is every time they say it. If you like fancy words, they're using a super superlative. Super superlative. To say that God is holy, holy, holy is to speak of the absolute purity, the absoluteness of God's holiness. So what is it? What is his holiness? If you just pick up a dictionary or perhaps better, uh, sort of a Bible dictionary or commentary, um, you usually find the description that it has something to do with being separate, being holy as being separate, not being part of creation. Uh, so being divine uh, and, I guess, unique from uh, the rest of creation. Uh, other definitions are along the lines of it being used to describe moral perfection. So be, being holy is to be morally perfect. Okay, so uh, being uh, separate and being uh, moral, maybe that's kind of built in here, but just imagine the seraphim saying this, separate, separate, separate. It doesn't, doesn't quite work, does it? Or moral, moral, moral. It doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite capture it all. I think it's partly because we're at the, sort of the limits of language here, trying to describe exactly who God is, his very essence. In fact, it's almost like the word holy is how we describe God and vice versa. As if to say, only one being is holy because only, there is only one God. Only one being is so unique, so unlike everything else, and so uniquely moral and perfect and magnificent. I think for the Israelites in Babylon, it's a helpful reminder there is no other God like him. Uh, he's not a God of the ancient religions that are so clearly just uh, projections of the human desires, inventions of the human mind. God is so unique. He's so different. No one can come up with this God. He's holy. Now, I could keep going. I could keep trying to give you technical definitions for the word holiness. I find it quite difficult, actually, to try and explain uh, and understand the word. And I think it's good for us to keep thinking about how we are instructed as God's people to be holy. How does that work? It's a constant command all through Scripture. God tells us to be holy as I am holy. Which I guess it means as much as we can be as finite creatures, we're trying to be as much as we can like God. Or to put another way, to be Christ-like. So it's crucial for us to be people who are holy. And there's a lot to explore on that topic. That might be for another day. Today, though, I hope what we can see is that Isaiah wasn't sort of pulling out his theological dictionary and looking up what the seraphim are talking about. He knew instinctively how to respond to a holy God. He knew enough. And he tells us exactly what we need to know today. Um, the way I've been thinking about it is it's a bit like me trying to explain the word heat. We kind of get a sense of what heat is. There's very technical definitions. You know, it's a form of energy that gets transformed from one environment to another. Uh, you kind of put the thermodynamic equations up on the screens behind me. Not that helpful. Uh, all you need to do is um, accidentally put your hand on a hot plate that was on. You know exactly all you need to know about heat, don't you? Whatever definition we come up with for God's holiness, it's the response, our response, that matters the most. So Isaiah beholds the Holy Lord and he responds, verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined. He's just awestruck, actually not just awestruck by the holiness of God. He's completely devastated by it, isn't he? Just flattened and ruined. Now, have you ever uh, sort of been asked this question before? Like, what would you ask God if you got the chance? Face to face with God, what are you going to ask him? Um, It's not a bad question, is it? It's a good thing to sort of ponder those things we'd like to ask God. But you see with Isaiah, whatever questions he has about the upcoming captivity, whatever it is, there are no questions for Isaiah. They all melt away in the face of God's holiness. We, we all have our issues. We want to have uh, fights. We'd like to pick with God and all sorts of things at different points of our lives. 
We might have issues with how he's handling the world or our personal lives or just issues of theology or philosophy we just don't like. Or now, Don't get me wrong, those things are good to explore, good to ask questions about. The point here is, on that day where you stand before this holy God, our questions don't really matter. It's because the holiness of God will give us absolute clarity on ourselves. Isaiah is painfully aware, he's not just casually wandering around taking photos of the seraph from this point. He's flat on the face, I imagine, and I think he's expecting to be obliterated by the holiness of God. He knows that the holiness of God is terrifying to anyone who is not holy. Even these seraphim, these burning things, are covering themselves up. Uh, I used to uh, work in a brick factory. That was the job I mentioned uh, earlier. I was an engineer uh, working uh, in a factory making, making bricks. Um, bricks themselves are very dull objects, but making them was a fantastic process. One of the most interesting things about making bricks uh, at a factory sort of scale is the industrial-sized kiln that they have. Um, 60, I don't know, maybe 70 or 80 metres long are these massive kilns. There's hundreds of thousands of bricks going through there uh, all the time, uh, heated up to a temperature of well over 1,000 degrees. Uh, 1,000 degrees is, is very hot. Um, where, where I was working, they had little um, sort of spy holes along the kiln, so you kind of have a peek and see how things are going as the bricks are moving through really, really slowly. Um, there is something amazing about looking at something 1,000 degrees. Uh, it's terrifying. It's, like, it's fascinating. You want to sort of be able to see that. But it's kind of, even on the other side of a thick, secure kiln wall, you sort of feel a bit vulnerable even seeing that kind of heat. It's absolutely devastating. Uh, I've seen angle grinders accidentally sort of uh, get put through the kiln and they disappear. Everything's gone. Nothing left. I think the holiness of God is terrifying for Isaiah because God is so pure and so good that it's dangerous. Isaiah is not protected by a wall or anything else and he's fully exposed. He knows full well he will not survive an encounter with holiness. And I'm sure he was a good bloke. He was a prophet and he's one of the good guys in Israel. Even he is unclean. The only thing Isaiah knows for sure at this moment is that his ruin is guaranteed. Now, of course, um, one of the great challenges about being a Christian in Australia is uh, the theme of judgment seems to be wrapped up in a lot of Bible teaching, and it's just not popular talking about God judging. Uh, That's actually also true for Isaiah in his day. It wasn't a popular topic. I don't think Isaiah got invited to many dinner parties because he talked about God's judgment quite a lot. But you see here, it's not actually that Isaiah is fearing God's judgment per se. He just knows the effect of being in the presence of a holy God. It's It's not Isaiah trying to mount a legal case or trying to convince God he's okay. He's not comparing himself to someone else. It's not about judgment so much at this point, is it? The holiness of God almost does the judging. It's clear to anyone who beholds that glory, actually, yeah, fair enough, Uh, I am ruined. There's There's no legal case to mount to that point. Which tells us the the holiness of God silences comparison with others. Uh, We can be so quick to condemn others. We can quickly slip into self-righteousness. We can look at our world, perhaps our church, and we can spot all the faults very easily. We can all do that. Uh, But the holiness of God ruins us all. And it's only then, I think, that the good news really begins. I said at the start that uh, chapter 6 shows the exiles in Babylon a great way forward. I think the idea here is, as Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, his response to God is is a model for us, as it was for the exiles. 
Uh, do you notice in verse 5, Isaiah says he has unclean lips and he lives among uh, people of unclean lips. He's identifying with his, his nation. He's one of them. He's a representative. And so I think what we're seeing is his model here is, is uh, so he's a representative model for us and what we should be doing encountering the holiness of God ourselves. Um, he talks about having unclean lips. I don't know why, by the way, he does that. I'm not sure why his lips are a feature here. Uh, it could be that our mouths are, you know, often reveal what's in our heart the most. The Bible is quite clear. There's a connection between our hearts and our lips, so maybe that's what's going on. Um, but the point is, Isaiah is unclean as much as every one of us. And so uh, it's when we know that we are ruins, it's then that we can be made clean. Do you notice Isaiah doesn't actually ask for mercy? He doesn't seem to be expecting it. He seems to be expecting to be wiped out here. And yet God's holiness is a merciful holiness. Uh, the seraphim, they take a live hole, a very hot coal, I imagine, uh, from the altar, I think of the temple. He takes that, old, uh, that, uh, that live coal, he puts it on Isaiah's lips, and it somehow it takes away his uncleanness. I don't know how. I don't know how that works. Um, and I've read quite a few commentaries now on this passage, and no one really seems to discuss uh, what seems pretty obvious to me at least. That would really hurt, wouldn't it? That would really hurt. I've never done a live coal on my lips kind of thing, but I have tried to drink hot tea a bit too quickly. So I kind of get, I kind of get what's going on. It's kind of painful. And I have no idea then how it takes away sin. Is somehow like the, the coal being connected to the altar of sacrifice? Is that, is that going on? Or is the pain that somehow atones for this sin? Is it something of the purifying effect of fire, perhaps, that makes something holy? Uh, whatever it is, it is clearly a provision from God. It's not asked for even, certainly not deserved, but it enables Isaiah to live. Even more than that, not just live, but to be made clean. Verse 7. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What great words. I don't think the exiles in, uh, in Israel would fully understand how Isaiah is made cleaned by this coal, and I think there's some great puzzles for us as well, but uh, what we know for sure, what the exiles perhaps didn't know, is what happened on the cross of Jesus is exactly the same thing. I think Isaiah 6 somehow shadows for us what Jesus will one day do on the cross. Through the searing pain that he experienced on the cross, Jesus faced that terrifying heat, a sinner facing a holy God. And so he died in our place, he atoned for our sin. He took our uncleanness, all of it, away. And amazingly, he makes us holy, just as he is. If you take notes, Hebrews 10.10 has a wonderful encouragement for us. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' followers are a holy people. Jesus carries all our uncleanness to the cross. Whatever it is we have done or thought... If we stand before a holy, a holy God like Isaiah does, we should shudder. We should say, I am ruined. And yet because of the cross, we can stand with confidence, knowing that he has made us holy. What good news. So if you're here today as someone who is uh, perhaps exploring who Jesus is, perhaps still tentative about following him, uh, it's great you're here. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, thing to be uh, looking into. And I hope today you've heard uh, me explain very clearly all of us are ruined by God. There is none of us who by our own merits deserves a free pass. 
But I especially hope, uh, if that's you, that you hear me say now, every one of us can be saved and made clean by Jesus. No matter, no matter what our life has had in it, and it's as simple as asking him for forgiveness. And we can do that right now. We can do it today. For all of us, I want to point out, it doesn't just finish here with forgiveness, does it? Um, Isaiah's life is spared. And the question then was moved on very quickly. What's he going to do with this life that he thought he was about to have wiped out? Well, again, Isaiah models for Israel and for us the right response to God's holiness and his mercy. Isaiah simply hands his life over entirely in the service of God. So verse 8, God asks, who shall I send and who will go for us? What's Isaiah going to say at this point? Uh, I think he might have a sense the job isn't going to be all rainbows and skittles. I think it would be very tempting if you knew what God was about to ask him to do, to say, oh, actually, I've got a pretty big week coming up. My lips are still a bit sore. Maybe count me out. I'll be in for the next one. No, he doesn't. He says, I'll go. Uh, It's not bravado, is it? I don't think. And not the brave, macho guy who's out to conquer the world. He simply knows he has been spared obliteration, and now his proper and sensible response is to offer whatever he can uh, in the service of his king. Now, it's the same question for each of us, isn't it? What will we do with a life that God has so graciously given to us? Are we willing to put up our hands and to go into his service as he sees fit? Unconditional offer of service. I think that's a bit scary, isn't it? Sort of signing out for a blank check like Isaiah is doing here. What's God going to ask me to do? Isaiah doesn't know, but he'll do it anyway. I think it's the same for us every time we pray, not my will, but yours be done. It's the same kind of prayer, isn't it? I'll do uh, whatever you set before me. I find that quite a difficult thing to pray. In fact, to be honest, I don't really pray it that much, as much as I should. Uh, perhaps you're like me, perhaps, uh, perhaps not. But I think Isaiah's willingness here is so challenging. He may well be signing up for a suicide mission at this point, and actually he kind of is. Uh, we'll have a look at that in a second. Uh, But it's exactly what's asked of us. It's the same thing. Jesus has called us to pick up our cross and to follow him. It's not all beer and Skittles. And Jesus tells us if we want to live, we must first die, give up our pretenses. So Isaiah is doing just that. He's faced death. He's been given new life. And now his life is entirely given in the service of his king. It's... Very clear to say that unlike the Israelites around him, Isaiah is no longer going to be going through the motions, the religious kind of uh, ticking the boxes. Have our hearts been captured by this God? Uh, Do our days include being sort of awestruck by his holiness and his majesty and his mercy? Again, I think my uh, most days, my answer to that is, well, not as much as I should. Uh, I'd like to do that more. I think as you come to this passage, I realize, well, when I'm confronted in God's word like this by the holiness and goodness of God, I think it's in those moments I actually can pray, not my will, but yours be done. That perspective is rightly shaped and reformed. When I'm praying that prayer, I think I can face the thought of being in the service of our king when it costs me a lot. When God might ask me to do things that will make me unpopular, uh, might even make people's hearts um, hearts hard towards me. Now, at a heart level, uh, knowing God's holiness will help us put everything uh, in its proper order in our lives. It will help us, knowing God's holiness, to know how to serve him uh, as best we can. It will help us do what's costly, 
I think it helps us get past, uh, say, the pain barrier, as it were, when you're sort of in those moments of conversation with someone, you want to share the gospel with them, but it just feels a little bit too uncomfortable to say something. Uh, I think when we're confronted with the holiness of God, like Isaiah is, I think we take the chance, don't we? We're reminded of it and trust it. Let's have a look uh, just briefly at Isaiah's gig, what's, uh, what's being put before him as his mission. Have a look at verse 10. It's not a great gig uh, in many ways. It's not the kind of job description most people would be putting their hands up for. Do you notice that it's because of Isaiah's preaching, what he's being sent out to do, because of his preaching, hearts will get hard, people will close their eyes to the truth, they won't turn and repent and walk headlong into God's judgment. It's not just because people won't listen to Isaiah uh, and his message of warning, it's because of his preaching that their hearts will be hardened. I don't know how I'd feel about that. I find uh, preparing a sermon pretty hard work at the best of times. Um, I can't imagine preparing a sermon knowing uh, that will lead to the destruction of my entire nation. That would be a pretty hard sermon to get ready. So in verse 11, Isaiah understandably asks, well, how long does this have to go on for? This doesn't sound good. The answer here is not a pleasant one. Because of his ministry, the cities will be ruined, the people exiled, the land utterly forsaken. That's a tough gig. That's a tough gig. Now, we live on this side of the cross. Uh, our mission is similar, but not the same as Isaiah's, thankfully. Uh, thankfully, we have far greater optimism as we hold out the words of life to those around us. Although, it's right to point out that this is what Jesus quotes as he sets our expectations uh, for the work of mission. Uh, verse 9, Jesus quotes in the parable of the sower, uh, as we go out and, and spread the good news, we should expect, as we speak about the holiness of God and about our uncleanness, uncleanness before him, People won't get it. Some hearts will be hard. They will be hardened. But Jesus goes further than what we see here in Isaiah, uh, chapter 6. Jesus tells us that for some, those words will be the sweet news of salvation. The gospel will be received. The good news that we can be made right with God uh, will transform lives. We should expect that God will save people through the message of his holiness. So to return to where we started, how is the church in Australia going to be a blessing to the nations? How are we going to bless the nation? Of course, we need to organise ourselves well. We need to have good strategies, great leaders being trained up. We need mission plans. We need to plant more churches. Those are all good things. We need to do all of those things. That's good. But for naught, uh, if we don't take the essential thing first, we need to know, God's people need to know deeply and intimately, we need to know His holiness. It's going to be essential that we are ruined by it personally and as churches, ruined by his holiness and restored by his mercy. I think from there we are motivated, aren't we? Compelled to go and serve a glorious, holy God with our whole lives. I think the message of Isaiah 6 here is that if we are impacted and awestruck by this God, this holy God, none of us want to go through the motions of playing church. None of us want to cruise along in the Christian life, just happy to not grow in our holiness. We want to grow in our holiness if we know this God. Instead, if we're captured by this terrifying, consuming holiness of God, we will earnestly be seeking holiness in our life. We'll give ourselves over in our service of him. And together, we'll join in the mission he's, he's called us to as his church, letting good people know about the salvation we have in Jesus, blessing them, blessing the nation uh, with the good news. Rejoin me in prayer. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Uh, Lord, there is truly none beside you. You are perfect. You're perfect in your love and purity. 
We ask that you would help us grow in our grasp of what your holiness is and how to respond rightly to it. Grow us in a healthy self-awareness that we, we all need your mercy. We all need to be made clean. And so please help each of us have the humility to receive your mercy. We thank you again for Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. And we ask you to help us grow every day in our grasp of what has happened for us on the cross. And then please fill us with that great joy, uh, the joy that comes from knowing him, from knowing you. And please help us uh, joyfully, sacrificially live in your service as your church, using our different gifts and skills uh, to help us, uh, through our service, help our world know about your holiness, about your glory, and about your mercy. Amen.